Welcome to TechnoViews, a new series of podcasts with major figures in the humanities and social sciences on topics at the intersection between techno science, culture, and society in Asia and the world. My name is Jun Jiang. I'm an assistant professor at City University of Hong Kong. In this podcast, it is our pleasure to have Professor Andrew Kipnis from Chinese University of Hong Kong. Professor Kipnis is a sociocultural anthropologist and a prolific writer on contemporary China. His latest publication is "The Funeral of Mr. Wang: Life, Death, and Ghosts in Urbanizing China," published by the University of California Press in 2021. Readers can access the book online for free. Today, we also have a co-host, Dr. Gonzalo Santos from University of Coimbra in Portugal. Dr. Santos is also an anthropologist who has done extensive research on family, technology, and social transformation. Hi, Andy. Hi, Gonzalo. Welcome to TechnoViews. Hello, June. Thank you. Hi, June. Thank you. Hi, Andy. When I saw your book. It feels like part two of a China series. Your previous book, From Village to City: Social Transformations in the Chinese County Seat, is also about urbanization. While the first book deals with lives, the second one talks about death. Death is an intriguing topic, especially in the current context with the pandemic. So, what prompted you to do research on death and funeral practices? Given that death and grieving are such emotionally loaded experiences, was it a personal experience that brought you to this research topic? Um, thank you. So I guess there was a personal aspect and an academic aspect.、Um, so the academic aspect was just that.、Um, I had observed many funerals in rural areas as part. Of my research in a village in way back in the 1980s,、um, and they were very open experiences. So anyone could, if you were in a village and there was a funeral,、um, you could go to the funeral, and people were honored、um, if you went to the funeral.、Um, and it was all organized by people in the village. So they had a lineage elder. Who、uh, would handle all of the ritual aspects and would tell people, you know, what to do in a ritual sense?、Um, and they also had someone in the village government on the village committee who would handle all the、um, governmental aspects of it. You know, the certificates you needed to secure and so on and so forth.、Um, But in urban areas, there weren't such thing, and I could see that there were new ritual industries cropping up in the urban areas,、um, and、uh, also there's no land, obviously, to bury someone. So I thought that、uh, this would be an interesting angle to try to understand urbanization,、um, and so I actually I wrote a grant to do this research, and it was about ritual industries. In urbanizing China, so I also had a PhD student who wrote about the wedding industry. So the PhD student did the wedding industry, and I did the funeral industry.、Um, from the personal side,、uh, 
you know, it wasn't a single experience, but I am getting a bit older. Um, and I was thinking, you know, I really need to force myself to think about death a little bit more. It's something I've just sort of avoided my whole life. Um, my father passed away a long time ago when I was still fairly young. And my mother passed away actually during the research. Um, and I was able to be um, by her side uh, when she passed away. Um, uh, but obviously it happened during the research, so it, it wasn't something that affected my decision to do the research. Rather, it was just sort of a general feeling that I was a bit too uncomfortable with death and that I should force myself to be more familiar with it. I have a comparative question. Um, I mean, you've been doing research on changing attitudes towards death and its management in Chinese urban context for many years now. What do you think is unique about the Chinese pattern of transformation when compared to other contexts around the world? That's a really good question. And I'm not sure if there's any one thing that would be completely unique. Um, I remember reading a paper earlier that said around the world you can see basically three different patterns in different countries um, around the management of death. And so one is for it essentially to be managed by the government or the state. A second is um, the government gives it over to certain religious authorities. Um, you know, particularly in countries where one religious tradition is completely dominant. And uh, it's actually the religious authorities who uh, handle death. And the third is to, um, for the great part, privatize it. That's what has happened in the United States. Um, and so there it's, there's a whole industry of funeral homes and um, uh, they basically uh, run death. So... Uh, and of course, this, this, this pattern is a bit too stark. I mean, in all countries, probably there's a bit of a, a you know, private a entities and there's a bit of religion. Um, but quite clearly, China falls under the category of it being run by the government. So that wouldn't be totally unique to China, um, but that would be uh, uh, set China aside from many other countries where religious authorities or private businesses have more of a say. So in China, all the crematoriums, all the funeral homes um, are run by the government. Um, and then I think also, you know, maybe China is not the most authoritarian country in the world, but it's definitely uh, uh, in that direction, towards towards that extreme. And so uh, the types of interventions that the party state makes are really quite strong. So things like saying, you know, this graveyard will be moved now. And, uh, you know, there will be no more graveyards, no more cemeteries allowed to be built in this area. Um, and then on a more local level, you know, things like you will not be allowed to set off firecrackers um, at this at any cemetery within the city limits starting now. So they there's very strong regulation 
of many aspects of the industry from the government and of course the fact that it's run by the government uh, makes that all the more easy to do so i think that's maybe not totally unique to china but it's certainly a very strong element in china that tends to distinguish china from um, other places around the world well since you bring up the government i think uh, let's talk about the government the Chinese Communist Party is uh, supposedly atheist. Ontologically, it believes in materialism. Therefore, when one dies, there's no heaven, no hell, no reincarnation, or whatever life after death. The party claims that this is a very scientific way of understanding death and managing it. But in recent years, the party states has become more tolerant towards practices and beliefs that were once dismissed as superstitious. So how to make sense of this coexistence of these two radically different ways of handling death? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I, I also feel that in some ways, right, so the party also, um, you know, it's very serious about memorializing itself. So, of course, there are special cemeteries for party martyrs. Um, you know, you have the mausoleum for Mao Zedong. Um, some people criticize that, but um, it's obviously in many ways a sort of sacred space. Um, so I guess my feeling, I mean, one thing I feel is that there's sort of been waves of tolerance and cracking down on quasi-religious or quasi-superstitious activities in China. And so really um, under Xi Jinping, you see a bit more things are cracked down upon. So there's a, a bit more, I think there's increasing restrictions on certain types of activity in China. Um, but um, still, there's, you know, a lot of room for people to conduct funerals in ways that they say, see fit um, and to invite religious practitioners. Um, there are many, many places in China where things are sort of banned on the books, but in practice, many people do them anyway. Um, so, you know, I went to plenty of uh, I saw funeral homes in China where it said uh, it's not permitted uh, to invite Taoist priests to run the funeral, but then it happened anyway, right? And so um, there's, uh, what do I want to say? There's both regulations that are strictly enforced and also regulations that are put in the books, but then not strictly enforced. Um, and so there's a, yeah, there's a huge range of um, things that go on. Moving on to the economy, I think one of the fascinating things about the, your book is that it shows there's a whole economy revolving around death. I mean, one set of economic relationships that you talk about in the book is inheritance. But there is much more than that, of course. The parts on uh, burial spaces and one dragon services are fascinating. Can you tell us a bit more about these dynamics of commercialization of deaths? Did you encounter any complaints in interviews, for example, regarding 
unscrupulous business practices or funerals becoming too commercialized and perhaps excessively expensive. What are the moral debates here? Well, this is also very interesting and a bit personal for me. Maybe I'll come back to the personal side uh, of it as well. And, and one of the ways in which doing this research affected me was that my views on this issue changed somewhat. Um, so first of all, what I would say that is that there is a lot of criticism of excessive spending on funerals, but this is really one of the sorts of narratives that comes from the government or the party, or at least certain members of the party. I mean, I don't even want to say that everybody in the party says the same thing. Of course, the Communist Party in China is, is a huge entity. Um, but there's a lot of official narratives about wasting money on rituals, and these have a long history in China. And actually, under Xi Jinping, there has been a crackdown on cadres spending too much money on funerals. And there have been explicit limits set um, in many parts of the country. So, for example, in Nanjing, where I did research, I was told that uh, a mid to high level cadre um, before Xi Jinping would often spend something like 200,000 yuan on the funeral at the funeral home. But after Xi Jinping cracked down on this, it's gone down to 50,000 yuan. So this has been a considerable loss of business um, uh, at the funeral home, uh, which is also run by the government, but it's a different branch of the government. Um, and uh, that's attributable to Xi Jinping and this critique of overspending on funerals. And I interviewed various cadres who would also say, you know, the ideal would be nobody would spend a cent on a funeral, right? It would just, it just wouldn't even happen. So there were, but these were very official points of view. So what I want to say is I always heard that criticism as something that was coming from the government. Now, I did talk to some individuals who would say something like, you know, when I pass away, I want a really simple funeral. I don't want people to spend a lot of money on me. So I did hear that voice coming from individuals, but sort of as a large uh, public sphere voice, I really felt it was coming from the party. Um, and so that was how I looked at it uh, in the main. Um, other people then will make use of this. So very interesting. There were large insurance companies that wanted to swoop up and take all the business away from these kind of local small level entrepreneurs um, who would the one stop dragons who kind of help people arrange uh, funerals and they would sell them like their funerary caskets and they would try to make a fair amount of money selling these funerary caskets so they were marked up a lot but they also provided a very real service um, and so these large companies would portray these small one-shop dragon entrepreneurs as just as you said as unscrupulous people who are trying to rip off uh, uh, pe you know you know people at their darkest hour when their dear parents or 
dear relative have passed away and they're very vulnerable to being ripped off. Um, but by the end of this research, I, I had very negative views of the people who voiced this critique and considerable sympathy um, for the small entrepreneurs that actually worked in the funerary business. And I guess my own view changed from one, I was probably one of those people who would have said, oh, don't spend anything on my funeral. You know, when I'm gone, I'm gone, that's it. But now I kind of feel like it's not up to me to decide. It shouldn't be my decision. It's kind of, I've come to look at it like writing a book. Um, so, you know, if you write a book or you write a journal article, then some people will cite you. And in academia, we were, were sort of urged to try to make as many people cite us as possible because somehow, you know, we think that makes us more relevant. But in fact, you know, some people will cite you to say, oh, and Kipnis wrote this awful thing. Isn't it terrible? And then they'll cite you. Or maybe they'll say something like, um, uh, Kipnis believes that Hitler was a great man and then cite me. And of, I never said anything like that, but there they cite me. So in other words, people can use me however they want to use me and I can't do anything about that. Um, and I think it's sort of the same after I go. If somebody wants to make a big deal of, at my funeral and say Kipnis stood for this or Kipnis you know, stood for that or I can't do anything about it, right? And if it brings some comfort, you know, if it's my son or my 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 wife or 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 another relative who is comforted by saying, oh, you know, Kipnis was a loving father and a loving husband, even if it wasn't true. But well, you know, nobody can know that uh, uh, other than my wife and my son. So. Um, you know, if it brings them comfort, it's up to them what to do. It really should not be my decision. That's kind of how I feel now. A question about technology. Chinese media has been reporting um, the emergence of a new phenomenon called digital tome sweeping in recent years. There are ways in which technology coexists harmoniously with or even facilitates so-called superstitious beliefs and practices. Did you encounter any such digital technology mediated practices of memorialization during your research? Or even the usage of digital technologies of remote attendance in funerals? Um, yes, I did. Uh, there was a, a fair amount of talk about this. There were, for example, in, uh, in the official cemetery in Beijing for Communist Party members, um, some of the tombstones had those uh, uh, two-dimensional matrix codes on them. And you could scan the co code on your smartphone and you would be given um, a history of uh, the official history of the person who was buried under that tombstone. Um, I also heard about uh, uh, digital tomb sweeping and things like this. I heard um, people talking about online funerals. 
and you know and there were debates about this people were saying you know with WeChat and all the digital technologies out there uh, people's lives are constantly being recorded so there in the future there won't be such a need for memorialization because we'll all have these extensive records of everybody we ever chatted to online and all of our contacts and so on and so forth um i guess i'm a little skeptical of of these larger claims i mean they're just things that people were debating um digital tomb sweeping i heard about it but i never talked to many people who did it and i saw huge traffic jams at cemeteries uh, during Qingming. So a lot of people um, were going. I would say that funeral attendants, um, this was, this is something that is happening digitally more and more. And I actually attended a funeral that way. So there was a funeral I could not go to in person um, and one of my friends who went to this funeral uh, recorded aspects of it for me um, and then sent it to me. And I saved that recording as a memorial. Um, so that's another interesting practice um, that can occur. Um, yeah, in terms of superstition, that's another really interesting thing. So maybe this is what um, was meant in the earlier uh, question about increasing sort of uh, modes of religious engagement and yeah that's that's interesting maybe they do happen in certain ways in digital realms that I had not really thought about so much so thanks for that observation one of the things you show in your book is that increasing urbanization and the medicalization of deaths have shifted the place of deaths from the home to the hospital at the same time, there are more and more medical interventions to delay deaths, quite often through the usage of high-tech procedures. But such medical interventions might not always be desirable at this terminal stage. Did you encounter any discussions about what counts as good deaths in the age of technologically mediated deaths? I'm sorry, I, I, I'd have to say I did not... Um... Uh, talk to many people about this. I was um, speaking not so much to older people as to uh, people who are in the business of running funerals and people in their 50s and 60s whose parents had passed away and so had had some role in arranging their parents' funerals. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't have too much to say about that, though I would agree it's definitely a problem, and it's certainly the case um, that people are dying at hospitals uh, much more than they did in the past, um, though I also felt that compared to American and Australian context anyway, uh, that the amount of um, technological intervention in death 
or even um, uses of uh, drugs such as uh, opiates um, for people in the late stages of cancer and things like that was uh, much less than uh, in the United States, though perhaps that's changing rapidly. Well, since you mentioned about talking to people during your fieldwork, I'm curious, what would you consider to be the most challenging part uh, when you're doing the fieldwork on death? Yeah, that's a very, again, a very hard question. I mean, it, it is a taboo topic. Um, I didn't want to bring up strong negative feelings of grief in anybody. Um, so I would avoid certain people. For example, I would not interview someone who had just uh, arranged a funeral of a parent. I never interviewed anybody who had arranged a funeral um, of their child um, because I thought th this could be too negative. Um, so if I was going to interview someone um, about arranging the funeral of their own parent, I would try to interview someone whose parent had passed away like three years ago, something like that. So this would be my target um, to avoid upsetting people. I was also blocked from certain uh, types of interviews. Uh, so one place where I really, really wanted to do more research was at these vocational schools or now there are universities where they are training people um, to work in crematoriums um, and work in funeral homes. Um, and work in cemeteries. Um, and I tried very hard uh, to be involved uh, at these universities. And so I was writing to professors in these universities and volunteering to teach English and to uh, give lectures on uh, how the funerary industry worked in Australia for free. Um, uh, anything they wanted and uh, they most of the time would not reply at all. Um, I had one place where I got some replies but I was not encouraged to talk to any of the students and I, I, I concluded that it was a very sensitive topic because uh, it's a very stigmatized industry and they didn't want to talk to a foreigner about the stigmatization. And one of the effects of the stigmatization is that the students who enroll in such courses are very often from quite impoverished backgrounds and also students who did not do well on the university entrance exam. And so this is kind of the absolute easiest type of course to get into. Um, and so they were uh, uh, did not really uh, want me talking too much to this type of student. I thought that was one factor um, behind it. So that was certainly uh, a frustration I had um, in field work in not being able to um, attach myself to one of these universities. 
Well, among all the materials you did not include in the book, can you share with us one that you would like to include in the book, but for various reasons could not? That's a a, a a tough question. So, I I think that I did not include materials from some of the students. I did interview a few students from these universities, and I did not include them um, because uh, I just. I felt that uh, I didn't really have permission of the people at the universities. Um, I had uh, a story of a very good funeral um, at which somebody uh, uh, organized a full opera uh, opera stage um, outside of their apartment block um, for their mother who uh, loved opera. And, uh, however, the opera itself uh, uh, led to complaints by the neighbors. Um, uh, in the end, I, I felt I couldn't really include this story because, um, uh, again, it was something I, I just didn't feel I had uh, permission to talk about um, uh, 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 at great length in the book. So I, I, I left that out. Um, but really, more than leaving things out, I think it was uh, a more a matter of research I wish I could have done, especially in those schools, um, that I was not able to do. Um, so I think there is plenty of room for further research on this topic, um, and I hope uh, somebody does it one day. Yes, yeah, surely. Um, thank you very much for sharing today, Andy. Uh, thank you, June. <laughs> Thank you, Thank Gonzalo. You. Thank you. You are listening to Professor Kidneys talking about his new book, The Funeral of Mr. Wang, Life, Death, and Ghosts in Urbanizing China, published by the University of California Press in 2021. Thank you for joining us today. Hope to see you soon.